What's up, Asymmetry? That's Josh. That's Eve. And you are listening to an episode of Asymmetry about the Beginner Series. Well, a little bit about the Beginner Series, but mostly about everything on planet Earth throughout history. Indeed. We talk about some environmentalism. We talk about culture, childhood, nostalgia. Dragons. Dragons. Magic. Dragons. Dragons again. (laughs) Farming. (laughs) All all this stuff. Great stuff. Yes. You're going to enjoy it. Tune in. We're going to wrap up Josh's beginner journey as well as launch into my own. Here we go. I want to know what being a beginner in the beginner series was like. That's what I want to know. It was was a journey. (laughs) (laughs) I bet it was. I bet what it was. A, what a, it was a pretty unique scenario in that I would learned bonsai through capturing it on video uh-huh. and never touched wire or tried to practice bonsai. Until your great thumb injury. Until my, and I got my thumb, my thumb was injured. So I had this scapegoat. Wait, how, how did you hurt your thumb? Skiing? Yeah, from skiing. Yeah, when I, I, I was skiing uh, pretty hard. <laughs> and I was zooming because I like to. <laughs> he was making videos and skiing at the same time. Is that what you were Actually, doing? I was. Yes, I have. Was, oh. yes. I do have. I do have you have the crash that hurt your thumb no, on I video. Don't. Same day, but I don't have that crash. But yeah, I mean, I I I got <laughs> a good. A <laughs> I got a good 12, 15 feet up in the air on a after I hit a ramp. A little hang too on. hard. Hang on. Twelve or fifteen feet? Like up in the air? Yeah, like twelve or fifteen inches. No, twelve or fifteen feet is like uh, that's that's. I it was double my body. And did you entirely land just on that thumb? Well, I mean, that's what hit first. I'll tell you (laughs) what. Oh wow, I I would think that would rip your thumb off. I mean, I I don't know. You must have very strong thumbs. That's what it is. I mean, I've been playing video games (laughs) since I was four years old. Playing different kinds of trading card games, so that's why I still have two thumbs. Wait, well, now I feel bad that Troy playing different for your types thumb of weakness. trading card games. Is that? Oh yeah, said? Magic: The Gathering. Oh, that'll get man, your thumbs I'm going. Such a Magic fan, <laughs> absolutely. Yes, <laughs> I played by myself in my room when I discovered Magic. I against just myself. got my Magic cards back. <laughs> Whoa. Yep. Yep. I well, got them. What's your favorite? Do you Ice remember Age. your favorite deck? My favorite deck. Like the colors, at least. Like black, there's like the more pestilence. No, and like I didn't poison. like black. I like green. Oh, I like I had that. I could have guessed that. You you probably great, should have guessed that. The great worms and the uh-huh, plant. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. The worms and were the, the best. nymphs and the like the tree. You know, like the the forest dwellers. I I loved and well, I was a big sucker for dragons. Yeah, dragon anything is good for me. Dragon anything. Yeah, all the way. Yeah, and they're called worms. W y r m. I think in magic. And they, you have like these crazy, like the artwork is what really exactly, exactly. The artwork was phenomenal. Never heard of it. There was in the Ice Age uh, edition of Magic. There was a card called the Jester's Cap. I don't know. Which one of my most favorite pictures ever was Norman Rockwell's uh, Saturday Evening Post uh, edition, and he had this jester sitting in like this sort of dejected. Uh, in uh, sitting dejected on the ground, and he had his like little like jester's puppet thing, and he was looking at it, kind of like I'm I'm kind of a loser. Basically, was the expression he had on his face. <laughs> That's awesome. And I just thought like it was one of the cooler images I had seen. So then the jester's cap became a banned card in Magic: The Gathering, uh, 
because it was so powerful, consequently, its value was like through the roof. And so I invested a significant amount of my allowance into magic <laughs> cards trying to get the jester's cap. And anyways, I ended up getting it. That's amazing. Yeah. You and the artwork it. is phenomenal. Yeah. It's great. So did you have like a little group of friends that were playing like in I did. Your high school? I did. Well, it was m- more like middle school. Okay. Yeah. So everybody was like playing football on recess and I would, I would, I would go hang out with the magic the oh. gathering group in uh, you know one of like the teachers' uh, offices that protected is all there, of the magic players. Is there any role play involved in it? No, no. it's not like Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. It's it's a straight card game. Yeah, strategy. Okay. Uh huh. Yeah. Amazing. You know. And does the game rely on <clears throat> certain collectibles that you have? So you create your own value essentially by it, your collection. If you have any idea of how Pokemon cards work, where there's like I Pokemon Go. Okay. Okay. So, well, it, it it's based on, so trading card games with strategy involve having like monsters or minions that go out and they're in play. Okay. So they're on the surface of the table. They're in play. You have resources, which is called mana, mon- mana or mm-hmm. mana. Yeah. And it's either like swamps if you have black decks or forests if you have green decks, and you could spend that mana to like use tower mana. You know, each the more powerful the card, the more mana it takes to tap, you know, to summon this 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 card. You tap your mana, that's your resource, right? And then you and then you have this thing and then you can put it into play and manipulate the other player. Yeah. So you have a deck of like forty cards. You start off with I forgot how many, six or seven or something, and you draw a card every turn. When it's your turn, you try to play a card using the resources you have. Gotcha. And you get you, you build your deck. It's like a customly built deck, or yeah. it can be. And that's well, what, that was part of the strategies, fun. right? Like very weak in terms of their durability as well as their damage they can do. Quick hitting decks where you tap one mana, you got like a one-one character out there. It only inflicts one point of damage, but you know, it's like a quick hitting deck, or then you have the big powerhouse deck where you're tapping like I love imagining six or seven mana, you're getting like a dragon. You guys gotta play against each other. Yeah. Well, yeah. That would be fun. Yeah, that would be fun. Um I now officially can. <laughs> That's you still amazing. have your deck, Josh? I've regained I don't know if I have my old cards, but I could just buy the the because there's like expansions. I could just go back and, and people will stick to okay. Let's only play cards that were released before well, 2000. I, can, or I have I have more than enough cards for you to construct make one. <laughs> you guys can share. Yeah, That's we, amazing. We, we can we can share and we can sit here and <laughs> and we can make chocolate milkshakes and play magic. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine you. Like, did, did you were you already friends with these guys or, no. or girls that also played magic in middle school? No. No, no. You became friends through the game. Yeah, no, I, I, I was like, that's awesome. Look at that. Like, look at those pictures. And I, I like, for me, when I was a kid, anything animated, like I was super into Warner Brothers, Chuck Jones as this massive creative mind behind all of the, the Warner Brothers animation, Norman Rockwell as a very significant, I would say, illustrator of, uh, of, cultural idyllic cultural concepts there's a tremendous amount of controversy around norman rockwell and 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 the boy scouts and everything that's happening with that right now but as far as norman rockwell was concerned from being employed by the boy scouts to going to the saturday evening post and then doing the covers for whatever 30 plus years he, he really sort of captured americana in a in a really interesting way magic and like the whole fantasy of magic and dragons and i just i really got into that uh chronicles of narnia was huge Brid- oh, yeah. um 
um, what was a wrinkle in time was a, my favorite book for a very long time. What was your introduction to that world? Because I think magic was actually the first for me, like none of, no one in my family, none of my closer friends cared at all about like Lord of the Rings or. Yeah, I would say like Fraggle Rock uh, was a big one in terms of like this underground, you know, and then uh, I think the Muppets, Dark Crystal. Mm, yeah, that's a good segue. That, that, that. Uh, Labyrinth and David Bowie and that whole thing, mm -hmm. but I really like Jim Henson and all of the Muppetry. I was really fascinated by the thing that fascinated me now that I recognize because it was definitely an aesthetic. And then when it transitioned into comic books, like Todd McFarland as a comic book artist who did Amazing Sp Spider Man, Amazing Spider Man, and then eventually started Image Comics and and illustrated Spawn, like. <laughs> The, the I'm imagining myself in seventh grade with a with a gigantic spawn shirt. Yeah, graphics. Are, so <laughs> yeah. I ha I had a couple nice. of spawn shirts, yeah, and I was a big fan too. Outstanding. Well, I've got I've got every spawn issue in multiple covers of limited editions. Plus, I've got every spawn toy that was ever made. Wow. Because it was the first toy series that had taken. And again, I'm getting back to my point. Yeah. The <laughs> abstraction of proportion which is actually one of the things that draws me to bonsai, mm. the abstraction of proportion. When you saw the Muppets, the scale of the, the body parts and like the feet were gigantic, and that's what made this lopsided-looking organism. And I just thought, wow, that's fascinating. But it still worked. It still, it was still just worked. Like, oh, wow. It yeah. was very abnormally interesting, and it wasn't what I had seen all the time. That really became sort of like the the epicenter of when I saw something and I found it really interesting. There was always usually a play on the standard proportion and perspective and scale. Yeah, and, that's and awesome. that just the, the, through through the rest of and that was really what drew me to Mr. Kimura's work too. Is he played on on this sense of proportion and scale in a way that nobody else in bonsai had ever done. Yeah. yeah, I'm seeing this biopic of your life where the first couple of scenes is you watching the Muppets, and I love it. <laughs> All about the Muppets. All about the Muppets. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and surprisingly enough, a lot of the animatronics and Muppetry behind a lot of that was made in Scapoose at Michael Curry Design Studios. And, really? Yeah, and I had no idea. Again, another like weird random tangent to living in the Pacific Northwest. Like, I didn't know that. And I wouldn't have moved here for that for sure. Like, I don't, <laughs> it's not like it impacts my life in any way. That shape, was or the form. actual long con. That That's was right. The long con. That's right. To yeah. be closer to Michael Curry. But Oscar, who does the metal work for us, was one of Michael Curry's uh, project leads. So, oh, worked, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, he worked with him for a long time on a lot of, a lot of really uh, significant projects. See, I filmed him for 20 minutes making that uh, structure for the spruce rust. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I could, have been, right. well, I could right. have been talking about all that. He could. <laughs> and how he won a Nintendo World Championship. That's amazing. Was it for like Super Mario 3 or something? Like, I don't know. It's on the podcast. You can listen to it. Okay. <laughs> Eve, I'm interested to know what your introduction to fantasy was and what brand of it you appreciated. Hmm. Wait, hang on. Didn't Barbie you of Swan Lake. You I'm grew so up in France, though, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were you interested in art in France? Um, I mean, I was like four, so. Oh. So she would scribble her own art. She was probably a fan of herself. Oh uh -huh. yeah, it was yeah. really great. Um, Do they have crayons in France? I'm, I mean, I'm sure they did. Are I'm, crayons French? I don't. Are they? 
I do wonder, like, what the first piece of art you made was in a small town, and what was what. Oh, I remember. Well, I remember one. It's small. The small town is called Saint Vincent de Mercusi. Saint Vincent de Mercusi. Yeah, exactly that. Yep. Um, it's uh, there was. I remember there's three levels of kindergarten, so you start school earlier than you do in the U.S., but it's similar to a preschool. So it was my third year of kindergarten, the last year before first grade. And I remember we were all told to like um, draw the earth or something. And I just remember drawing the globe. And I was super interested in like history and stuff. And I was actually pretty accurate for a little kid with like the concept of the continents and stuff. Wow. But it's probably because I just like looked at a lot of maps, you know. I just remember like going on a lot of road trips. My parents like unfolding the massive glove box map nice figure out where you're yeah. going yeah. yes yeah um but in terms of fantasy uh well i mean i watched like muzzy as a kid to like learn english yeah um and blues clues helped me a lot with english um but i feel like i might have i think i watched blues clues in french i remember when it came to like learning time that was really hard for me uh-huh. understanding time like that that part for a kid is pretty tricky like 15 minutes what does that mean uh, so abstract. So my parents would, always, I would always be like, how much longer? Because we were always going on road trips or traveling somewhere. And they would be like, three blues clues. Oh. <laughs> so, uh. <laughs> that's probably like 45 minutes, like three oh, episodes. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's such a good parenting tip that you just gave me. Yeah. Well, I mean, but Taff might be a little bit beyond that. But No. No? No, absolutely not. Time is, time is a very hard thing to I wrap your mind around. An hour and a half and half an hour. I remember having fights with my brother about what that meant. Hmm. because it was just like he was just trying to explain it to me poor Garrett he was just so smart and I just wasn't able to keep up (laughs) well well, what's great is like we can think oh man when we were kids we didn't know how time worked but nowadays we can question it even deeper and 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 be even more confused by it yeah I don't know that I still know how yeah I know as a project manager I still don't know what time is (laughs) (laughs) but I mean I, I just learned recently that we actually have lag like on our input with our brain so that all of our senses all accumulate into one now one present for us as an individual so if you poke if you get your foot poked and your eye poked at the same time you you experience it as one moment but it took a little bit longer for the poke from your foot to get to your brain. So it, it lags for it for you to experience that all together. So huh. you're not like, wait, huh, hold, what's going on? That was, you know, so our brain makes up for the fact that we're, some of our senses are lagging behind, whether it's our vision or our hearing, and we try to make up for it. Actually, there's a, there's a, a tipping point with our vision matching up with sound with distance. So if someone's bouncing a basketball, once they get to a certain distance, our brain is no longer compensating and we can tell that it's off because the sound waves taking a while to get yeah. to us. Yeah. But if they're just in that just underneath that threshold, it it lines up because our brain is compensating. Well, do you know what that threshold is? I'm I could get it for you, but it's, it's I think it's like 40 or 50 feet. Someone yeah. they showed. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I remember as a kid watching that exact phenomenon happen and being like, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> because it was, it went from being completely synchronized to completely uh, out of synchronicity in a very rapid moment. And it wasn't even close. Right. Once it, once it lost that, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah it's our our bra- brains are amazing. I know. Yeah. That's like what, when I always get confused by, um, if you film tires and then the, because of the frame rate and the speed of the tire, it looks like it's just kind of 
hovering. Yeah. That blows my mind. Or, or like drills. When Jesus was filming the drilling of the slabs for the subalpine fir forest, the drill looks like it's moving backwards. Right, yeah. Which oh. is really interesting. Yeah, shutter speed gets all kinds of wacky results when you mess around with it. Like, that's why, I mean, if I was to say, oh, I want to capture what's on this monitor right now, or maybe a, a TV from 1942, I would have to test it to see what shutter speed I would need it to be at so it wouldn't look all funky. Well, it's also like fabric and cloth and textiles do that weird thing too, right? Yeah. What's that called, Diana? You might know. A more, some There's a word for like when some shirts make video look really funny. More. Yeah, that's the word. Huh. That's a more. I've used that song for video. Just saying. It reminds me of Frank Sinatra. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't. Uh, that's all I have to say. About that. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I got. To that's say all I got. About that. Josh, are you a bonsai uh, practitioner now? I am a bonsai practitioner now. Are you? I feel. Yeah, I feel that I'm going to carry this through oh, for wow. the rest of my life. No kidding. Whether it's just one tree. I mean, I I made the claim. Don't you have multiple trees? I do. Oh, okay. I, I know, but I know. I, I'm just saying that you uh -huh. know, they might. A couple of them might die. Do you have a favorite? Do I have a favorite? My favorite's the honeysuckle. My favorite is the honeysuckle to wow. this day. Wow. Yeah, because it was like both from the inception of it and the reason why we even picked it up to the styling process where I already had some experience and I felt like I was being more intentional yeah. with the initial styling and more confident and just my and it's movements. it's the best and, smelling one too. And so. it's the best smelling one. That <laughs> actually is the number, that's probably why you just said, I know it smells good. Yeah. It doesn't look great, but. Only for short, <laughs> only for short periods of the year though. Yeah. This is the, this is, this Does is. Does it the, stink other periods of the year? No, it doesn't Oh, it just stink. doesn't have like it just a. It doesn't smell. Oh, okay. Well, it is kind of crazy though, because there's a win winter honeysuckle. So it does flower like midwinter. And yeah. Was, it's just always surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, I, I, I do feel like I am going to continue to grow as a bonsai practitioner, and uh, I'm excited to do some more. Hopefully, I can still repot. I feel like it's still a decent time to be able to repot, right? Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right in the wheelhouse right now. Okay, for where we're at, but it's Actually, time. It's time to. Do, it's time to get doing. I might do that. Yeah, that's something I'll, I'll do probably like even in my off time. But I, yeah, I really want to get the honeysuckle in a in a pot. So, did you find a pot for it? I keep looking around, oh. <laughs> uh, and I, I I don't know yet, but yeah, it, it shouldn't be too hard. We got plenty of options. You pick out a good one for that. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I feel um, I feel good about where I'm at. I mean, it's interesting going through developing skills for a hobby while also trying to do my job at the same time. Right. <laughs> because I'm like, oh man, I really am excited to do this. And then also I have to create, I have to create times two because uh -huh. I'm creating video and I'm also creating bonsai, but I don't know how to do bonsai that well. So at least I can do video. He really but knows it's still, how to create a video. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, yeah. You're pretty good at video. I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, but what, yeah. What, what, why, what prompted you to want to do this? Because this came, you, this had already been worked out when it was delivered to me. Yeah. Um, I guess. <sighs> I don't see any women doing bonsai. Uh-huh. And I just I don't know. I just I think it's sometimes nice to learn from someone you might be able to relate to. I don't know. I just yeah. feel like if you look up bonsai online, every single video how to make a bonsai is 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 that really that's the driving factor like the number one factor for you? Honestly, it's pretty far up there. That's awesome. Oh, it's wow. pretty far up there. It's I'm just like so 
I'm, I'm, I'm obviously I'm super curious. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know plenty at this I point know too, which is plenty, cool. which is weird, but only like in, um, yeah, I, I know plenty, but like, in I feel like random facts and tidbits mm-hmm. and like through writing social copy or like when Diana asks me something, I'm just like suddenly scared. I'm like, yes, it's a beneficial nematode, of course. And I'm just like, what? Why do I know this? What, what happened? Where, Where do I know this from? stuff? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It like went from this transition of like suddenly now I have this um, a massive backlog of information that I've never applied. So I wonder if it makes it <laughs> more useful or if it actually is more impractical almost. It's a, it's but de- I, I feel like I like already know when I go to the nursery what it is that I'm looking for. Yeah. Oh, you already know? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Well, but, I mean, your dad's been a very serious bonsai practitioner for a long yeah, time. Yeah, but it's just not cool when dad does it. Well, it's I understand. A, it's like... <laughs> I understand, but you're... But I... But I... I what I... I guess... It's been around I'm, for a while in my... You've had a lot family. of exposure. Yes, I have. I remember, like, I used to... Um, he'd take me on, like, weekend stuff, and we'd go to some odds house from the club, you know, and um, I would walk around, and, and he would be talking to all of them, and... I didn't really want to talk to any of the older men. So I would just kind of look at all the trees. And I do remember thinking, um, looking at a lot of miniature, I think I was looking at a penjing, um, so a bunch of penjing in somebody's backyard. And I remember being very interested by the little figurines mm-hmm. as well in there. Cause I was just very young. So like what we were talking about in terms of like fantasy and proportion. So kind of seeing those little figurines and these small miniature imitations of forests and trees. Yeah. Um, was pretty cool once you take your dad outside of it. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, now I guess I've just like seen it so much and I've like, I build the forum Q and A's. So I see everybody's personal submissions. I'm in the forum. So I see when everybody uploads um, questions or when they want to share cool trees or when they want to share their pet next to their tree, I'm looking at all of that. So I feel like I've got this big library in my mind of like, I've even logged trees on my phone of being like, oh, I really want to work with a jacaranda. Like I saw that that was pretty and that's what I want to work with. (laughs) So I've made a list of species and I almost want to go and find them, seek them out. Killer. Yeah. I can definitely say that there's a, a struggle with the amount of experience we have observing bonsai and Ryan practicing bonsai and, uh, and then like, uh, whether it's the tactile experience of touching the wire or, you know, just bending tree, the branches or, or what it, it was interesting battling, like knowing the process of, especially like styling. Cause I've watched it happen so many times. And so I'm battling this, like, Oh, I know what Ryan typically does throughout a styling. I don't know how to apply those techniques very well right so it was like knowing what to do next but not being able to do it so settling for what i could do (laughs) that decision paralysis yeah but then also just letting myself make mistakes that was what i had to embrace Mm. um because that's how you learn and that's how you grow and um yeah watching you work with the wire got me nervous i was like oh i'm only gonna pick really flexible trees because (laughs) that seems like a pain it does feel so good once you are confident in your wiring whether it is like how far you can push bending the branch or just applying the wire itself feels so good once the confidence builds that's something that i really started enjoying was just like knowing that my application was going to result in me being able to manipulate the branch in a way that would be 
you know, beneficial to what I was seeing as like the design as it was going to play out. <clears throat> it's almost like um, I always equated it when I was first learning. What it, it was the equivalent to like seeing an image in your head and then trying to draw it on a piece of paper and it never looked the way it did in your head, you yeah, know? Yeah, definitely an experience I've, I know as an artist. <laughs> oh, man, that, is, that, that was one of the most frustrating things about drawing and painting for me. It was like, mm-hmm. ugh. And, and you know what the trick is? No. You turn the image upside down, draw it upside down. So you, oh, that actually make make you more objective, right? Yes. So maybe yeah. I should do that with my first tree. Just put, <laughs> style it upside yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> in, in, invert, invert the turntable. That's yeah, because you just focus on style. line and shape rather than your preconceived notion of what a face or a pizza slice or a whatever is supposed to look like. Oh, that's really interesting. So you think about it way more in the abstract, and then you turn it over. Because I started some of my earliest drawings of um, cartoons because that's nice and easy, easy two D. So I would do like i would just redraw like simple princess animation forest critter stuff dragons of course (laughs) always dragons. it all comes back to dragons outstanding (laughs) this is why game of thrones was so incredibly yeah and then let us down so hard but it was beautiful in a moment (laughs) well i mean even just the animate the the, i i envy those that worked on the both the modeling and animation of those dragons like it's they were just so well done uh, like it's it's like a it's definitely a dream come true in in a, like to see photo real looking dragons Wasn't like that's a, the best. Didn't huh. Aragon do that a little bit? That kind of I haven't heard much about Aragon since it came out. Oh, did the kit the I, I never watched that. Ar, was it Arag- Aragon? E R O G. Right, the kid, the blonde kid. Um, something like that. I want to say that yeah, because I think I remember my brothers reading it and watching it, and I do remember that being like the first portrayal of of like the dragons that I saw in like that, you know, like high tech graphic portrayal, but it was so like dark. But yeah, when I think of Game of Thrones, I'm like, that was like the, that's, that's how we see the dragon today now. Like if you Google a dragon, that's what's coming up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I, uh, I've made it through season one, episode five. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, yeah. Let me know when you hit season Well, that's six. another thing about... <laughs> I don't of- think it's going to happen. Yeah. that's what. I, <laughs> I came to that conclusion. I was like, I'm going to watch Game of Thrones. Get to like and, season five. Well, I it. started trying in January and so far I'm through five episodes. That's about all. That's, that's and very I, slow. I've fallen asleep through most of them. So yeah, yeah. yeah. It takes some commitment. The, the, the thing I appreciate about the fantasy elements of Game of Thrones is that it makes it feel like the novelty of fantasy in the Game of Thrones world is like off the charts because it's not really around. So anytime something magical is happening, it's like, oh, this is like a big deal. Like the dragons slowly making their appearance and like growing and like becoming a thing, like that was felt like a big deal. Whereas some fantasies instantly, here's all this magical stuff happening. Yeah. yeah. Where it's just it, like, it oh, makes this is too much. sense. It's set up in like a culture and an ecosystem where like it very much, but that's what's interesting about it too is the like historical aspect. Like, I, that's what I really love about it historically is like the wall is based off of like Hadrian's wall. Like, it's all based off of these real, you know, events. is Hadrian's wall the wall between. Uh, England and Scotland. I'll make a fool of myself because I won't. I don't know exactly. I, I shouldn't. Have, I shouldn't have even asked that either. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Hadrian's Wall. In fact, I'm pretty in fact, sure. I, I do believe Willabog Bonsai, uh, up in the very north of England, you drive right by a portion of Hadrian's Wall, uh, which was fascinating, mm-hmm. and it's a really interesting bonsai facility out in the middle of, yeah, a very very far out. What do you got? 
Let's see. Long distance footpath in the north of England. Yeah, there it is. Boom. Runs 84 miles. Yep. Ryan, would you ever want, if you were ever to dive into <clears throat> anything similar to like penging or any other form of having a, a bonsai tree or a styled tree with figures or some kind of scene that you're really portraying as like, here's this literal scene that I'm going to show you. Yeah. Would you ever consider doing like a fantasy scene? Like with a dragon on a rock, <laughs> you know, uh, like. I, I, well, I think, yeah, that's a really good question. I guess I've never really considered it, but um, I feel like I, I guess I've tried to be so literal with my work in terms of representation of landscapes that I've been to and witnessed and experienced or yeah. have interpreted that I would have a hard time putting a dragon <laughs> in most of my yeah. compositions, but uh, but I'm pretty open. Well, yeah, that makes that makes me think about like when Taff leaves his various toys oh. in a forest, and yeah. it's like there's Nothing like a huge boat full of a whole bunch of little Lego guys with spears and no yeah. heads. Well, well, <laughs> and the pumice heat bed is the ocean, and he is just out there battling while I'm repotting. I I. That that's the coolest thing that I experience is Taft's engagement with the trees here, mm. because it's just like wow he he's really seeing this as a miniature world like this is his. I always wonder what he tells other kids when they're like what is what are your dad I mean I guess they don't ask that yet because they're like little kids but yeah. he'll get to a point where they're like what does your dad do <clears throat> he just I would yeah. I would love <laughs> totally, totally yeah what does he do good question I would love to see a fully realized like a fully realized composition inspired by something Taft has shared or that he is he has been like, hey, this is, you know, like, yes. Taft, what do you see with this? Like, what do you, you know? A collaboration with Taft. Yeah, but the weird, you know, the interesting thing about Taft and I guess about kids when they play is like, there's really no, no boundary, no limits, no yeah. reservations. So like, when he gets all his toys together, whereas I definitely would keep He-Man figures yeah. organized <laughs> and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles organized. And like these these worlds don't cross over for him. It's like, listen, if Voltron wants to fight with Lego guys and He-Man comes in and saves him on his, you know, purple cougar, um, that feels okay to me. Yeah. Well, what's funny is I don't know if you had this experience with when you were a kid with your action figures or if you did keep them separate, but I remember vividly uh, Rambo and Leonardo saving Chuck Norris from drowning <laughs> yep. in my fish tank. We've had this conversation before, and I just, I did not do that. Wow. No, actually, it, now that I think about it, I don't think I ever mixed any of my different types of play sets. Like, it, I remember I had, like, I had Playmobil, I had Polly Pocket, and I had these horses that my mom had Like that what? was, like, that were, like, old school toys that you had to be careful with because they would break. Uh -huh. To me, so it, was it was, like, like I'm going to make some fan, not that I knew what fan fiction was, but I was basically making fan fiction of what if all these universes merged and, you know, it well, was... Well, there was always that kid. As I was like, oh, who's going to win the battle? Superman no, but it was Batman. more than that. It wasn't just who would win the battle. <laughs> like, I would be... I would not let anyone touch my action figures. If I was pausing, like, nobody come in my room... Like, my mom cleaned up my room when I was in the middle of playing. I would be devastated because that was mid-episode. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get to see how it panned out. <laughs> Well, I think I think the I think the uh, the interesting aspect of all of this is like what you're seeing in modern society is the grown up version of that generation that had all of those action figures, whether it's the perpetuation of video games into uh, like a profession or whether it's like 
how now there's professional Lego builders and Lego's taken a whole new level or whether you talk about like these action figures creating what I would consider to be a really elevated level of creative in the in in the world of design and branding and architecture from the fundamental base baseline of Lincoln logs and Lego creating a, a, a prominence in architecture that's I mean, really, architecture right now is a is an endeavor like it's never been before, and it's like wow, you see the impact. And somebody, somebody, when when Fujikawa was here, we were driving down to Yosemite, and Taft was like pretending like he had a gun and he was like shooting out the window at like street signs or something. And Fujikawa said, "Children in Japan would never." would never play like that they would never think (laughs) to shoot something imaginary guns don't exist because it's not a part of and it got me thinking like you know with gi joe i used to watch gi joe the cartoon and it's like gi joe real american hero gi joe is there you know it's like it's creating this whole value system around the theme song of gi joe and then like you know there's a, a romance to being in the military that I had no idea. And then I started thinking, is this a manipulated system? Like, did the government create G.I. Joe to expand military? 100%. Yeah. Did they really? Oh, yeah. Is this real? Yeah. Well, it's, you believe that. it, I'm but is that. there any information back? Because because it was, it was and this is this is the long game, like, of masterminding society. I, but long-term, well, it's all also, toys, uh, like, play into this concept of what your culture is trying to perpetuate, right? Uh-huh. So that comes along with every type of toy. You have that in, um, like, like for example, I just watched a documentary about Barbie, and they talk about the perpetuation of what Barbie represents right. in female culture and, like, the time that she began. Um, and at the end of the day, whether it was made by the government or not, it is made by the entire um, society that is in this belief yeah. that this is the direction. So it is it is the generation of adults that are designing for that younger generation of kids and that's then how it just gets passed down generationally wow. but yeah. from the message of toys. Well, and it's a self-perpetuation thing and it can... And I do wonder how much impact it really has because there's there's plenty of evidence to suggest violent video games does not result in violent human beings. Uh-huh. So, you know, I think that as a culture, we definitely romanticize military in a lot of ways but then again i also have a lot of people in my age group not that i'm like you know trying to explore much outside of my bubble but a lot of people generally feel that the government and military like heads are making not so great decisions of what to do and you know nobody's demonizing those that are on the the ground right um so but they they are the result of a culture that does romanticize um, that, but uh, more often than not, I feel like people that go into the military have a, are part of a military family, and there's a lot of those in the oh, U.S. Yeah. Oh, yeah. interesting. Um, but yeah, I also like it's interesting because you know you think of World War II and how we, in so many ways, were seen as like heroes going over, especially with uh, with Germany, yeah, um, and going over there and like being celebrated, and you know, there's all this these wonderful moments of. Um, small towns, big cities, like celebrating when Americans showed up in their tanks and with their guns uh, to kind of save the day. And then, you know, the military gets romanticized in that way. Suddenly, you know, my father is like, I want to go into the military and this, that sounds great. I want to go help out, you know? And then he gets thrown, he gets tossed to Vietnam. And so then, you know, that's like a, 
I feel like there's a lot of that that can go on where there's this romanticization that can come from potentially like an actual good place in some ways, because I think everyone can agree, let's get rid of Nazis. And not that everything that happened in World War II was fantastic, but at least that's like a reason to go do something. Um, But then it can become, oh, well, this is actually a great thing to do. And you can get taken advantage, people can get taken advantage of. Yeah. Did you ever see Letters from Iwo Jima? But uh, Clint Eastwood directed it. Clint Eastwood created a pair of films that were shot from two different perspectives about what happened um, on Iwo Jima specifically and sort of the the two realities uh, of that. And and I, I just thought it was such like a... I didn't really understand quite how they overlapped and connected in the way that it was described they were, but, but I, I just thought it, it was a really... Uh, it was fascinating to see somebody take... Uh, a subject matter from two different perspectives and try to create a, a, a dialogue around the realities of, of those things to, to whatever degree it was accurate or not. I have no idea, but uh, it, it was, it was kind of a fascinating I- idea. It was a, it was a, a unique idea in the world of, I think, creative endeavors that don't have a lot of uniqueness to the idea. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is interesting. It is exceptionally interesting. It brings me back to though, Thinking about all this and this perpetuation of of cultural ideals around and and passed down generationally through these different subject matters, why do you think there are not more women in bonsai, Eve? And we had this conversation with Shelley, but I still don't I still don't have as much clarity. I know yeah. there's there's other people talking about it, but you're motivated to to throw your hat in the ring for the beginner series. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I don't know, you know, I don't know. I, obviously, I don't have the answer, but. Um, like I said, if, if you, um, are, are to walk into a room and everybody looks a certain way and they're all doing something together that you might feel left out. Right. Right. So if you walk into the virtual world of YouTube or the online bonsai world, um, you're kind of seeing a general, um, homogeny, at least in the U S practitioners. So, um, I would say just and and points of like from the point of an entry level, it doesn't seem like it would come as naturally. It just does it just seems like you have to break through a couple of things first, mm-hmm. you know. Um and um yeah, I guess it's just like a matter I mean, at least for me, it is a matter of representation. And I mean, I do know um of our members, you know, I know I communicate a lot with a couple of our um, female members and um, the ones that are there are reoccurring and they're consistent and they're dedicated. And I see in them the exact same passion and drive that we see um, in our other members. So I'm, I am curious. I don't, I don't know why the numbers are lower and maybe it is just a matter of like breaking that barrier of representation. I don't know. Um, but, you know, that's not like my only reason for wanting to go in it to like be this like model necessarily, um, it's like, I want to go into it and, um, almost break the, I guess I want to break the stereotype that it feels odd. Uh-huh. Like I want it to just, I feel like it's going to come so naturally and I just want to show that ease. Yeah. I want to show how easy it is to just step into it. Yeah. Um, I just, I don't know. I'm so excited to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. <laughs> I, I, I like that as like uh, something to capture coming from the 
the perspective of a filmmaking standpoint or being behind the camera because most of my experience was a great struggle. So I'd love to capture you. I think it's easy, in. but here I go. It's gonna no, be no, no, no. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna have struggles, right? But I think it's also just great to show that like you're an artistic human being mm-hmm. and you are stepping into it confidently, knowing that okay, like. I've got a good idea of how to approach this. Right. And you're going to be able to do it just yeah. as anybody else. And would what I be really want to do is is try stuff that um is untraditional to what I see at Mirai almost too, because we do have like obviously we are a garden, you know, that has obviously largely your art, Ryan. Um, and then, you know, a collection of some student trees here and there. And and obviously Troy has some trees here. Um, but we're very much seeing a, a certain person's style and artistic choice and choice in trees. And so I'm really curious to see, like, without any, um, you know, pre-notions of, of what I, it is that I want to make, but just to really dive into it in a sense of, like, this is my garden. Yeah. Um, I'm going to explore what it is that I want to do. And if my design is weird or untraditional, that that's something I want to explore further. Sure. That I want to that I want to get a little bit like kooky with it. I kind of want to. Um, we talked about Kusimono a little bit earlier too, but I'm kind of interesting interested in this path of um, kind of like breaking down or finding the gray area between bonsai and Kusimono. Yeah. Um, both in like the species that are used and the way that they're planted, or um, even the idea of like. Um, unseparate them you know like put them together why does it have to be this that and i understand that obviously in the traditional model you have like the three-point display but i think for myself as an artist i kind of want to get really multimedia with it you know i want to have ferns with my trees and i want to work with vines um yeah i think vine species would be really interesting Mm, to work with yeah because then then it becomes an element of like, not just are you working with the shape of the vine, but like you can work with really interesting vessels that the vine is then attached to. Yeah, sure. So getting like really, I think I want to get like really sculptural with it. Yeah. You know, what's fascinating about vines too is in the greater landscape and in the greater ecosystem, nobody values vines. Really. I mean, there are a few wisteria, old mature wisteria, Uh, plants and whatnot but like uh, if you wanted to go into forest park and you wanted to dig an ivy vine a big massive contorted mature ivy vine people would celebrate that action they they would celebrate you removing that noxious weed that's going to grow up the doug first and big leaf maples and choke them to death right right and it's like it's not the ivy's fault but like vines are this thing that there's like a different value system around than a tree or mm-hmm. grass or they, they they really are this like it's interesting to hear you say that because they're just this intermediate sort of lost lost yeah. personality in the world of plants. Yeah. Well, there's also me. sorry, no, I, I was just revisiting watching Private Life of Plants by David Attenborough. It's a '90s series that's amazing. But some of the first really well done time lapses of plants growing. Um, and interacting but there's a I don't remember which rainforest it was in it probably was the Amazon but there's there was a vine that was highlighted on it that takes one form when it's on in the undergrowth and making its way up a tree and then takes another form once it's up in the canopy right and I that just that kind of transformation transition is really interesting 
Yeah, vines have like this very, um, I think that they like undulate and curve a lot more and seem to have um, like a rapid growing youthfulness to them that is really interesting to me. And I find them to be very, um, I think they, I think that they're really interesting when they emphasize architecture. Yeah. Like I really love vines on buildings or old buildings and the way that vines are kind of like that in a lot of places, that first element of nature that takes over what was once man's. Yeah. Because yeah. it is so rapid growing um, that it's it's just kind of like that first bit. And it's kind of like you said, like an understory thing where it, it just doesn't get acknowledged or well, gets that, stepped on, but yeah. it grows so high and it grows along with trees. It grows on trees. That's well, so I think that uh, what's interesting is it's almost like because vines can be so successful, we value them less because they're they just become they're just everywhere. Yeah, you know. So it's like, oh wow, nice job being so successful at life vines. Like, yeah. you're no longer Conse- interesting. Consequently, you're not cool, right? Like, how about that? How about that struggling, like, right. you know, decrepit sort? Yeah. Well, and I think too, you know, what the thing about vines that I find as you're talking about comes to mind is they're limitless. They're really yeah. limitless. The flexibility. The, the, the- I don't know that there is a vertical limit to which vines can grow. Right. If there's a scaffolding to support them. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about trees, trees trees are limited in their vertical growth by the friction of the water molecule sliding along the structure of the wall of xylem and how far that water molecule can be pulled by the draw of transpiration out of the leaf mass against the force of that friction, right? So the structure of the xylem tube, the straw, if you will, that the water is moving up, the water has to adhere to some portion of that tube and it adheres to the wall and then a water molecule adheres to another, to another, to another, and that creates the water chain, right? So so the the transpiration, the evaporation of a single water molecule pulls the next molecule into that place, but it can only pull it so far against the downward force of gravity and the friction of moving along that wall of wall of xylem, right? But yet a vine, if left to its own devices, is going to cover the ground for an almost unlimited amount of space, especially if it starts to self-root and self-perpetuate. But when it goes vertical, I've never really seen a vine cap out on some limitation of its ability to move water. And mm-hmm. that, to me, is very, very interesting physiologically as a study of vascular structure right mm-hmm. yeah that's I just awesome totally geeked out no maybe i be love more it successful with vines if they're if they're just so happy to grow maybe it'll make me feel like a really successful practitioner yeah yeah <laughs> well, well quick follow-up sure. question because i know species by species there's limitation based on whatever was uh you know whatever height was most advantageous for that species in that environment but um what exactly is happening besides that so it's like they've reached the, their zenith or their their highest yeah. height. When it's attempting to, or once it gets to that threshold, what is happening besides that water not being able to make it out? Is there any kind of other like negative side effect of growing to the highest height, you know? No, well, I mean, it obviously depends on, you know, elevation, latitude, uh, location, uh, environment, availability of resource, all that stuff, right? But say, for example, you take a ponderosa pine caps out at, you know, roughly 80 feet, uh, it maybe right. Water rises to maximum height that the, the pine needle. So you also have to think about needle physiology, cuticle physiology, vascular physiology, root physiology. 
And when you think about all of those mechanisms that are at play in that, that all dictates how far water can rise against the force of gravity. But once it reaches that pivotal vertical height, it just moves laterally. So water gets to that point and it's like, well, that's about it. We'll Boom. grow some more branches or yep. foliage yep. out on those branches. All, all, all of a sudden, now you don't get the same delivery of the hormone that causes continual perpetual vertical growth. So it starts to give rise to the hormone that causes lateral growth. Asymmetry. And you get a <laughs> lateral doming out of the apex, which is a major insinuation of age. Yeah, in, exactly. In pine, I mean, right? I saw... Uh, right away, right when you said, "Oh, it's going out." Okay, the branches are getting bigger, and one branch is inevitably going to get bigger on sure, one side than sure, another. Sure, and the and the canopy gets broader, and unless yeah. unless the elements in the environment, through sail effect or snow load or whatever else could happen, you know, unpredictably reduce the shape of that, there really isn't a lateral sort of limitation until in, until it. it gravity structure exactly right the and and this now becomes a discussion of resin content that reinforces the backbone of structure as well as the tension that the wood can tolerate and pines a very soft wood which means it cannot elongate laterally to an unlimited mm -hmm. degree now take an oak take like Those, think think yeah. about some of the big oaks in the southern united states the ones right? that like, gave me a concussion in savannah oh really well, well yeah because <laughs> <laughs> they're just so huge and sprawling you know they like drop down and drop back mm -hmm. up and stuff like that and i was just walking along on a date and boom right in yeah. the head like Real. the bit like the beam here yes like the beam here well what's interesting about that <laughs> when i think hilarious. about oaks <laughs> when i think about oaks in florida and how so often the bigger branches were close to the ground and they could get some support by being on the ground and yeah and not you know, they're not going to break as much if they have that support. Yeah. Is there like uh, lateral limitations similar to vertical in that, okay, like if a tree grows a branch this big and the tree's this heavy, it, it's going to inevitably break. No, well, naturally the, the, the tissue will relax. Now, does it relax to the point where it no longer has the, you know, do you get a leverage and an angle that applies a force that causes the tension fibers because the top of the branch is under tension, the bottom's under compression. Tension and compression is what gives the dynamic forces that allows a branch to exist laterally off of a vertical element, right? So when you start to think about, okay, an oak, like a California coast live oak, agrifolia, Quercus agrifolia, will push these big long branches out and they won't lay down on the ground. But if you came along the secondary and the tertiary branches off of that as an arborist, like when you're talking about macro size bonsai, like this large scale bonsai, if you cut the wrong branch, you will completely interrupt the tension compression relationship of the tissue. And, and in one chainsaw cut, an entire half of the tree can just drop to the ground. And it's a really hmm. dangerous thing because it's such an intertwined connection. It's like a, it's like a, a, a bridge that has all of these support mechanisms in it and you break one of them and then it disrupts the distribution of force and the bridge collapses, right? Hmm. So like when you look at the mechanism of trees, it, it really is such a, it, depending on the species, like junipers, you know, are a little different because they become so vein specific. I, I think more, more likely than not as an adaptation to availability of resources and the harsh conditions they in, exist in. But like, you know, the structure of an oak is entirely intertwined throughout the entire structure of the tree in terms of distribution of weight on the tension and compression of the wood. It, and, and that then becomes how far can tension and compression hold this with all of the elements in play. And when one of those elements, for whatever reason, lightning, uh, abnormal snow in California and the interior oaks, 
uh, a real heavy, heavy, wet snow will almost destroy the entire structure of oaks because they're not geared to bear that weight in addition to what they've already extended themselves to. Is that why Spanish moss is considered like an issue in the Savannah area? The, the, there is a discussion. Yeah, well, S Spanish moss technically is not a parasite, but it does embed itself in the actual plant tissue. It just doesn't feed off the host, but it decreases their photosynthetic capacity, which reduces vascular productivity which therefore decreases integrity of the wood over the course of time. Okay. I, I think m more than anything, though, what you're talking about is the discussion of the excessive accumulation of Spanish moss can hold a lot of humidity and moisture, which then adds to the weight and adds to the leverage, right. which the tree is not ready to compensate for. Eve, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like we have a good job. <laughs> and also I feel... The experience of being here for three years, because I, I was I was about ninety to, to ninety three percent there nice. for that whole conversation, nice. mm -hmm. and that felt about <laughs> as good as wiring my my honeysuckle and being confident about yeah. about those. Yeah. you crushed on the honeysuckle, and your uh, your mugo pine also turned out quite quite nice. Yeah, I mean, I, that's another one I got to find. The taxes is still for. waiting for you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I think a part of why I'm not so attached to that taxes, despite the fact that I said my my children would show up here and take care of one of that <laughs> oh, tree. From, from that episode. Yeah. That <laughs> um, I, I feel less attached probably because I attempted to, to structurally wire it and uh -huh. then you did it. Uh. And then I was like, but I still feel attached to it. It's just a little bit less because it was like my first try. You ended up actually like achieving kind of what I was going for. Right. So there's a little bit less personal like wow. feelings with it. Yeah, um, I feel that. Yeah, but I, I do feel like I need to, to follow through on, on that one. I don't want to work on any pines. You don't? I don't. I don't blame you. Okay. I'm excited right. for you to explore. Like, like pines. I, I had to over time kind of embrace like, okay, I'm going to, I'd like to learn the fundamentals here and I'm only going to learn the fundamentals if I let the tree guide the process and I, you know, kind of go by all these standards. But like, I do think I could have allowed myself a little bit more freedom earlier on to mm -hmm. kind of deviate um, a bit more. But I feel good about my journey, but I'm excited for you to kind of be jumping into it, trying to like go your own way off the bat. That's you that's interesting. You, you had you had Mariah looming over you largely. <laughs> yeah, which isn't a terrible thing. A little bit of a little bit of a drastic shadow. <laughs> oh, Josh! But also, also a pedestal. Well, oh, I appreciate that. That's a nice little spin. Yeah. Um, what is your version of a tree? Mm. I've never asked you this either. We've talked about it a little bit, but but I want to know. But what's your version of a tree? In terms of like my ideal tree or what I envision. If I said tree, what comes to mind? Hmm. Well, unfortunately, since working here, that's just expanded widely. Um, but yeah, I guess probably impossible to go back unless I don't know. Yeah, if you remember. it might be like hard to go back. But I, I think of like there's a couple of trees for me that really I guess resonate, and I can like touch on those. I remember being a kid, and there was these big fields. Um, in Arizona where we had recess and I remember one of my favorite trees was this huge willow with these you know long hanging tendrils and that was obviously just fun as a kid because they would 
touch all the way to the ground. So there was this mm-hmm. um, sense of like really being in part of the fantasy. So um, like the Tamarisk is really interesting to me. However, when I think about like how, oh, you have to like wire that all down because it's small and young. So the growth is actually all upright. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to do all that. Yeah, <laughs> but I like yeah. the way it looks and it's down. Um, and then I loved like, um, I, I really love like desert landscape. Um, I, I love, I've always loved cacti and I love like, um, Mesa Verde trees. Um, that's just like a big part of my childhood. And just like when Diana was driving me home yesterday, um, I stopped and I was like, that's my favorite tree right there. And I took like seven pictures of it yesterday. Cause I was just so obsessed. It's, um, some sort of a flowering tree. Cause I don't know how to identify trees yet, but, um, something about just like trees and it's just like this part of this moment of spring that's so magical where you can step under the tree and the smell is overwhelming and you look up at the sky and you just see all these different layers of blossoming flowers and um for, it's just a landscape tree that's like on the road right by my house huh. but it's interesting because it has very much like this flat top um very low tree so it kind of gives me this sense of really being present with it yeah. so I, I think that what i'm seeing in the similarity between those two trees is that i really like a tree where it's low enough for me to engage with it mm-hmm. um like even with an oak tree in savannah where like yeah. the branches get real nice and low and i think i have a harder time seeing the beauty or wanting to work with a tree that's really um drastically tall or a formal upright so i think like redwoods and i'm like it's a beautiful tree but i have no interest to make a bonsai out of that. Um, when I think of pines, I mean, the traditional pine, I think of like an upright pine. Right. Not so much interested. I think it's like the needles also that dissuade me. I don't find needles to be as exciting of a foliage to like work with. So I think I'm more interested in like leaves and flowers in that sense. Or even, um, I kind of like the the types of foliage that are, I don't know how you would describe them because I don't necessarily know what it is to them, but like... Um, they kind of have like a spongy, very liquidy water filled feel like, like a taxis, I feel like kind of has that. A it's little, like, su- a little bit more succulent. Yeah. It's not a needle, but it's a little bit more of like a, a rounded succulent. That's interesting to yeah. me. That's interesting to me just because of the way that it like the texture is really interesting. Yeah, sure. So like a, like, would you consider a spruce like that or is a spruce still a spruce more needle like? The spruce is a little bit too needle like. So like spruce in early spring. Like a subalpine fir. Subalpine fir. Yeah. But like, but like a, um, when I think of a larch though, and that early growth is also super spongy. So that's oh, kind of yeah. interesting. And yeah. because it's like a deciduous conifer and the way that it gets super orange. And then that was like one of the first things that I did when I got here, right? Was paint your larch for the, um, right. Christmas thing. And I was like, that is so cool what if i had one of my own larches and every winter as it's losing its colors i get to paint it i get to paint all my cones i get to paint my tree and yeah. then it loses it and then i get to do it again it's like a fresh canvas That's that was so cool, so cool. Yeah. that project was so cool so i guess i need a larch this is what it's coming down to wow all right <laughs> we're so we're looking for a larch we're looking for a willow or some form of if I'm, i just want to try something flowering for sure Mm, and, man, and something I, something viney see it's this thought process that i'm excited to explore more of in my own personal time because i, I didn't necessarily think that right. through i was just like i'm along for the ride let me sure. go find something when i also so remember i was there when we went to go get the pickup shots for episode one and i remember we went to the nursery and it was just kind of like 
um you guys were both walking around and then you like pointed out some moments where like okay this is a good bit okay we'll just grab this one I don't know if there was so much um thought to it at that point also because you were new at Mariah too that you couldn't distinguish like what species would I want to work with like how do you know you know you hadn't seen a hundred live streams yet about pines how would you know that you don't or do want to work with a pine yeah sure I, I think I also had this kind of preconceived idea of oh I need to try to embody like like the everyday beginner and didn't allow myself to kind of just be me as Josh you know I was like oh how do I make this the proper video for the beginner series (laughs) you know so that was something else that influenced me which I'm glad that you're embracing your own drives sure moving forward I'm just trying to think of like the the beginner now maybe being a beginner that doesn't even realize that they would be interested in bonsai until you start thinking about like just um i think that if more people were just open to the idea of seeing any species or seeing any opportunity with any species and then you go to a nursery and i i feel like anybody who goes to a nursery um would automatically feel connected to some sort of a tree or a plant or something like that. Like Cooper's got like one plant in his house right now that's just been like thriving. And I get really excited to like, I check the soil every time I'm there. I don't know why I'm doing this now all the time, but I'm just like, I'm like moving and I'm like, I think it needs more sun. I'm going to add some water. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like so excited to see it like have a new leaf. Oh, that's awesome. So like the sense of like nurturing something that you pick and you get to evolve, like that's what's, that's what's really engaging for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've already had a, little, a few discussions about what this is going to look like because, you know, we've already made a beginner series. It's there. There's a lot of information in that. And we're doing this with Eve, not to just do that all over again, but we're going to be capturing something a little bit yeah. different, something new. And I think like I'm already seeing this come together in a in a unique way that I mean, it's almost like exploring bonsai. It's, I feel like it's not like beginner series season two. It's like we're exploring it in this kind of new, fresh perspective in some ways that an yeah. everyday person that's like, oh, what's bonsai about? Mm-hmm. And and it, and if suddenly you realize, oh, it's about making these kinds of trees and, and you see that represented, then it's like, oh, I don't know if I have that amount of time or this is a little intimidating. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could just go like use some of what you can learn from Mirai to just explore whatever way you want. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, the, the idea of being able to understand um Number one, physiology, keep your tree healthy, keep it happy. And then number two, being able to understand how to sustainably manipulate it in a way that gives you the design you want, whether that final result gives you bonsai or kusumono or whatever in between or out there in the world that you could create or a houseplant or anything. It's mainly comes down to um, understanding the, the techniques and the horticulture. And then from there, you know, you can take your design anywhere and it doesn't have to be defined. Yes. Yeah. Totally wide open. Honestly, I think coming, it's interesting for you both to come into it with less bias, less uh, uh, institutionalization of the quote unquote bonsai approach. That's really, I think, probably where the next layer of aesthetic exploration begins is, is a little bit less indoctrinated dogmatic approach to design and and Mm -hmm. i'm excited to see what you come up with because i think it's going to be really interesting 
I'm excited to try some like some obscure plantings. Like I really like I can't remember the name of the artist. You mentioned them all the time, but they did the planting the shovel for the oh, national Greg Brendan. show. Yeah. Yes. I'm very interested in, in stuff like that. Like uh-huh. I've I've seen the like junipers that were planted in the tire. Oh yeah. I, I just thought that was really interesting. I like that idea of like the man-made crossing over yeah. the natural the found, so. o- the found object well, approach. Yeah. Definitely. Well, to me, I feel like there's so many species of tree that you can explore how they look in their natural environment. But the natural environment, nat- the, the definition of natural is just kind of interesting to me, right? Because <laughs> all of the earth is natural and what we're doing on the earth is natural. This is a naturally occurring process sure. for us it, to be where we're word. at as a species yeah. right now. So the tree that has half of its branches cut off down the road because the power lines are coming through is how it's naturally growing because people put some power lines there and also have cut plenty of the the branches. but. We cut them because we naturally want to have electricity. electricity yeah. <laughs> um, so it's it's just interesting to think about like how you're, you're we're we had this natural progression as a species to evolve to become technological, and we're technological on this planet. And we also have trees alongside us, and those trees are having to uh, adapt, and just as they do without people around. Mm. And so I think there's a lot to explore that in in that way, like for me, because I, I actually have been getting inspired by looking at all these trees that are are getting like obliterated because yeah. we want to have the power lines come through. And I'm just like, oh, wow, that's a unique yeah. life experience. Lots, <laughs> of, lots of tree yeah. changes too yes. with that recent storm with all of like, like for three weeks all over the city of Portland, it was just like, like tree branch carcasses just everywhere right. yeah and you're like it was like a crazy presence to have it all on the ground you're like holy right God, like this is really af- affecting us you don't even realize it until yeah. the storm happened how much each and every single one of those little branches can make such a big difference on each individual's experience of their day like yeah that's crazy oh wow yeah, yeah. wow big impact yeah <laughs> huh it always fascinates me when you when you look at the greater and I think this is a real perspective sh- shifter for me, having done bone size. You look at these trees in the scale of the landscape, it's like, oh, yeah, that's a big tree. But the concept of how much physical plant mass is there until it falls on the street and is at a scale and perspective that you can appreciate, that was a small branch off of that tree which has a gajillion of those and it is a massive thing in relationship to your size and scale as a human being. Yeah. And you think that all of that was generated by utilizing the sun's energy via this solar panel to break molecular bonds and reform simple sugar that that created that scale of an organism. The scale of the amount of leaves that fall in Portland yeah. in the fall, it blows my mind. And I have never hated yard work so much in my life, but oh my God. Yeah. Like the you can have a foot of just leaves and they're still falling. And you're just like, what? <laughs> what? And the tree the and tree's about ready to do it again. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Gonna do it all over again. Yeah. Like, let's go. No, I definitely, it's interesting when you go for a hike. And I mean, being in the redwoods, I had this kind of weird experience when I was there where I recognized how big they were when you stand next to them and you see the trunk, but you look up and it's a similar view as you're, as if you're, you know, 
in the gorge, in the Columbia River Gorge, sure. because you don't have that sense of scale. Yeah. You don't have somebody up on one of those branches to see how far away it is. Right. And that's kind of just an interesting trick of perspective that we also play with here at Mirai on a daily basis. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know what else is I, I have over the course of time found to be very fascinating, just based on the simple phenomenon in, in bonsai of you know, you expose the root base when you repot and you see the structural roots and then you put top dressing on the fertilize and roots grow the top dressing, fertilizer, moss and fertilizer, moss, and roots and fertilizer, right? Every year that all of this leaf mass drops, whether it's a evergreen tree, a conifer drops, sheds its needles after the first flush comes out and photo starts photosynthesizing. If it's a deciduous, it happens in the fall. The world, the world, the globe, the earth, is constantly being further and further buried. Mm. It's constantly being further and further buried by the production of this organic matter. You know, and you'd think like, well, it falls and then something utilizes it and it reaches some sort of equilibrium. It does not. No, it does it not. Builds up. It is. It, it does shrink to a certain. Well, I mean, that's though, that, that's geology, right? Yes, it, exactly. Go to the coast. Look at those lines on the rock. There's. 3,000 years in that, that line, right? It, it's amazing. And what they're finding, like in the, uh, in the Amazon, right, is that there were societies there that were ex in existence and for whatever reason or not, they think probably uh, sickness from, you know, explorers and, and foreign personalities coming and passing on contagion. And then the, the, the Amazon rainforest overgrew it and now these things are like, you know, 20 feet in the ground. And they're finding these signs of civilization via sound waves and Do it. or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, 20 feet in the ground? What? Yeah. How, yeah. How, and it's just organic, organic detritus. Yeah. Crazy. That's well, crazy to me. Well, especially in places like the Amazon. It's just, yeah. I mean, after I went. I went there in uh, Southeast Ecuador in the Yasuni rainforest and I went on a night hike and I was just, I was just digging with my hands to see what was in there. <laughs> and there's just layer after layer of, of undergrowth that just, it was like, look, ripping open, ripping off the roof of an apartment and then you rip off the, the next ceiling and you're seeing all these different life forms on these different levels. And that, all that stuff ends up dying, <laughs> you know, just like with the, the the tree the trees and everything else that's there and it's just constantly piling on top of each other and yeah. that's just and yeah it's fascinating amazing. isn't yeah. it funny that we've made these concrete roads now that we just have to clear all the time <laughs> yeah yes and that and and yeah it's yeah there's there's a lot of really interesting things there's a lot of really interesting things about the attempt to control and organize that we as organisms bring to the equation yeah. You know, because there is like a beautiful organization to nature. Like it's not total chaos. I mean, the Fibonacci sequence and how things are sort of structured and stuff is there's a really obviously has to be, otherwise it would be chaos and ca chaos would deconstruct itself over time. But like the fact that the human organism as like a, you know, we try to organize societal structures or tribal structures or whatever you want to call it and and organize like and have some sense of control of our pillars of necessities for survival. And then once we have those, then we really start going super unreasonable and start 
basically organizing stuff that we don't need that's not even that good for us. Yeah. Which which, which is a, a a really interesting yeah. shift that we make right there. Yeah, we advanced technologically way too quickly for our own good before we could understand what would actually be beneficial to create and how to develop. Yeah. It is, it's all like subjective at this point because one person thinking something is good is another person thinking sure. it's bad. So I, then it becomes this like... I uh, think I mean good in the sense of surviving as a species, uh-huh, yeah. you know, like, and mm-hmm. I think when I, whenever you see this, these like future uh, renderings of what a city might look like in 80 years or 100 years or whatever, you know, you see a lot more green and it, it's, uh, and I'm get, I'm understanding and embracing that m- more and more it, as I recognize that, like, I hate being in most cities. Concrete jungles make me depressed, yeah. especially when I've experienced what a diverse, like, ecosystem can feel like and, and being in that. And I think that the more that we can embrace having an, an ecosystem within our city in a way that's sustainable and doesn't disrupt our day-to-day life, mm-hmm. like the better off we're gonna be in so many ways, whether it's carbon footprint or whether it's just having yeah. clean water. Mental health. Mental health, yeah. so much of it, right? Yeah. Like, And I- I've always been so interested in like backyard habitats where, okay, like we have, especially in Florida where everyone's got a, a quarter or a half an acre, <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's just lawn. Yep. And it's like, well, there's so much there's and that became the standard right for so many reasons so it's nobody's individual fault but as we progress and and come to understand that wow we actually all benefit if we grow native plants yeah. in our backyard yep. and and let that flourish and that can be something that we enjoy ourselves i think that if we're if we manage to to shift in that direction um within the right time then we're all going to um benefit yeah yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, it is interesting when you think about how did how did lawns and grass become the norm for... The, I looked this up. Oh, you did? Did a deep dive. Kentucky shed, bluegrass. Shed some light on the subject matter. So Kentucky bluegrass became popular, I think, in the United Kingdom, if not somewhere nearby, many, many years ago, before lawnmowers, when you needed to hire a team of gardeners to... Uh, maintain your grass. Uh-huh. So it, it became this, um, became what to use w- in your garden. You know, like if you have a significant amount of land, you have uh, your beautiful garden with these different plants and different elevation. And, you know, so you've done your your landscaping. Well, what do you do with all this open space? Let's put Kentucky bluegrass there and then maintain it by keeping it short enough so people can walk around on it and uh-huh. have a plen- pleasant experience. So that became a symbol, a symbol of wealth. Uh-huh. The more Kentucky bluegrass or grass in general that you can have in your space, the more wealthy you are because you need a lot of people to maintain the space. So that became, okay, all right, this is the standard for what makes you appear to be wealthy or just have um, you know, some clout in your neighborhood, you know, <laughs> is what it eventually <laughs> became, right? So it's interesting how that evolved and came from basically you know, looking up to wealthy people and saying, oh, I want to be like them, which is very consistent in society, right? And so it, it's interesting that that ended up becoming um, something negative for us as individuals and as a society to to be <laughs> to be planting Kentucky bluegrass instead of yeah. everything else that we could be planting that would help us and our surrounding environment. Yeah, well, I mean, it's also combined with a greater amount of, 
human presence drawing on the natural resources, which at one time there wasn't a scarcity of fresh water, you know, and there weren't as many issues related to sort of natural resource over overutilization or abuse. And so it's like now grass at this as culture has evolved and population has expanded and temperatures and 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 moisture patterns have changed, it's like, yo, grass is not good. <laughs> yeah. You know, at that point in time, it was like, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Put some grass well, out there. Well, you that's know? what I mean when I say like it just all happened too quickly. Like, you know, it's almost like it's like we we I, I get frustrated, you know. I feel like in my early 20s, I had a lot of like rage when I looked around and I was like, this is what we're doing, <laughs> you know, uh, like, how did we get to this? And the more I look into it, the more it's just like, oh, this all absolutely makes sense. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. there was just so much ignorance and nobody can be at fault for being ignorant when they're deciding what to plant in their garden. Well, or I don't even know if it was ignorance. There just wasn't the same limitation or there wasn't the right. same issues that had to be considered. Right. You know, if you had... I, I, I pers- listen as a landscape design major and horticulturalist, like I, I, I could poo poo grass all day long, <laughs> but, but in all honesty, like it's a great design element. It's very functional for human beings, unless you live in the Pacific Northwest where it turns to mud if you touch it in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I like for moss. That's just if you and, and when and now with, with, with the Colorado River not even reaching the Gulf anymore because all of the water is, is consumed by, you know, Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, and all that stuff. It like yeah, it's grass is a contentious subject at this point in time, but or not the Gulf, but the Pacific Ocean. But um it's a contentious subject at this time, but at one point, people were like, "Dude, we've got all the water we need. Like, let's build more. Let's yeah. make more grass." Of course, yeah. <laughs> let's make more grass. Let's make more grass. It's like, what there's never going to be an end to these redwoods. Let's chop yeah. these babies down. You know, Doug fir. Nah, there's billions of them. Oh, uh oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, so much of that. It, I feel like this. The the amount that we both consume as like a world population and i guess also just like uh american american culture where you're middle class or higher right you 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 have this wealth like where you can buy go buy acres and acres of land if you just have a decent job in america and like because through both population growth and the amount of of wealth in the world it's like with those two factors alone that was just a recipe for okay. We're gonna be using all of our resources really quick. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Who would have ever thought though? Who would have ever thought that the the um, the size and the scale? You know, like when I think about when you think about crossing the Rockies, if you spend any time in the Midwestern states, you know, I don't know what they looked like before they were covered in corn. I have no idea what Nebraska looked like or Kansas or Missouri or Iowa because, you know, what they look like now are rolling hills covered in corn with some trees in between the, the fields of corn or trees along the, the waterways, right? So who knows what that landscape looked like, but I'm pretty sure it was primarily prairie or prairie and mixed, mixed forest uh, to some degree. But when you hit the Rockies and suddenly you have monster ponderosa pine and spruce and lodgepoles and you go to the west of the rockies and you start to 
past the rain shadow of the Sierra Nevadas through the deserts of Utah and Nevada, and then you get into the Sierras, and the Sierra Juniper is a monstrosity of a tree, and the giant sequoia, and the bristlecones prior to that, and then you hit the the coastal redwoods after that, which again, you know, like when you think about the history of North America, the coastal redwoods used to grow as far east as the Mississippi River. And so to think about the recession of coastal redwoods as this gigantic tree and the size and scale, the mentality that that kind of flora created, the the, the size of the landscape, the open space, the size of the mountains and the mountain ranges, the size of the flora, the size of the, of the fauna that existed in this continent did to some degree probably have a very influential uh, impact on the mentality of the individuals that were exist. How could it not existing in this space and seeing redwoods that are, you know, 200 feet tall. And you think, well, if I cut that down, that's going to make a lot of houses. Yeah. There was never a, a consideration of that, that scale um, flipping from like the human it, to the tree. When like you think about, um, Nice. And you think of the Donner Party. Uh-huh. And you think the of true what... true crime route? There was a true crime episode on the Donner Party? Oh, of course. Oh, that's cool. interesting. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, they talk about all, all things, you know. It's it's not just crime. I mean, it's, it's also just like tragic stories. It's all just intense. That's okay. what I like. <laughs> if, that's even, what, that's even, how I go to sleep at night. That's how I go to sleep Eve, at night. if you love tragedy, getting into bonsai. Yeah, I do love tragedy. <laughs> oh, so it's, no. it's all about it. <laughs> Um, Not if you're studying at Mirai. <laughs> That's true. But if you think about like the Donner Pass, it was like at that time, you know, nature was just beaten down. Like, you know, oh, like the, the sense of the human was um, utterly just like at a loss. Like there was just so many, there was just so much loss and so much sense of being trapped that I'm sure there was like after it, there was kind of like this, at least the, you know, U.S. immigrant mentality of coming to the U.S. is like, you know, nature is trying to hurt you. Nature is trying to yeah. attack you. Yes. We have to fight it back. We have to take it down. We have to make it manageable. Yeah. We have to make it our resources. Um, but that's kind of the colonial experience in anywhere that they've gone. Anytime that they, you know, arrive anywhere on any continent, as the same with Australia, you know, that first area that they land in, and then it's just like, it's just nature is beating man. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was very much the sense of conquer, conquer, conquer. And now we're just in the total reverse of that now we're like yeah we're like wait what did we do oops oh (laughs) Oh, shit that worked out for a while there (laughs) this this uh yeah taming of nature well but i think even when you look at the cultivation of land i don't know i i I don't know how how much this does broadly apply but like the first season of chef's table francis (laughs) mallman listen Good segue. I've good been segue. Wa- I've been watching. Hey, listen, I've been watching the chef's table over again. I went back to season one, Francis Mallman, but Dan Barber talking about the ecosystem of cultivating a farm in the eastern United States, and he said, "Listen, you got you got cows that that poop. You got chickens that spread the cow poop to distribute the fertilizer. You got pigs that are I don't know what the pigs do, but they do something. Cultivate the land, maybe cultivate the land. I believe, and and then you got goats that hold." nature back that keep the forest from completely consuming this cleared space that you're trying to grow your sustenance in right and that was like the the animal association that then intertwined with you know the the edible plant life that that he was trying to cultivate a blue hills farm or whatever is going I, d- on there. I do remember that now that there was like a weird little yeah. relationship yeah. there and it's like 
God, that's interesting. Yeah, that, this is a new approach to agriculture that's becoming really popular. Is it's it? going to be a label on food here soon. You sure. know, be, and be at Whole Foods and only Whole Foods probably. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still a really cool concept to like create your own kind of ecosystem on your land yeah. where it's managing itself and actually making it easier rather than, oh, I got to till my field now and I have to, you know. So, yes. And that's where the history of it becomes a part of the culture of farming because if you're in a farm family, you want to do what your great-granddad did or, you know, on the farm. Yeah. And maybe that's not the best practice anymore. Um, and some farmers are embracing um, new, new ideas and doing that, which is, yeah, it's really cool and hopefully becomes more widespread. I am. I. I think it's. I think it's amazing. I. I think the the more you can work with as opposed to against, because the notion of working against, like I'm gonna drench it all in herbicide, and I'm gonna take this big ass metal machine and I'm gonna chop it all up and till it all up. It's like I'm gonna get a vibrating table. All si- <laughs> and a vibrating chopstick. <laughs> Just use bamboo. Uh, that's right. Just keep it simple, people. Uh, all signs point to. All signs point to with those big, uh, heavy-handed approaches, uh, lack of sustainability over the course of time. Yeah, yeah. There's, it's just like such a, a a long-term. There's such a long-term study of that now in in cultivated civilizations, where it's like there's ways that you can do it well, and there's a lot of ways that you can do it really poorly. Yeah, yeah. Well, even um, and I'm sure you have an understanding of this coming from a horticultural perspective. But you can create basically floods if you're um, you're tilling your fields and, and to the point of and also spreading so much herbicide to the point of not having many plants around on the ground. So you don't have uh, is it permeation with a, if you have a bunch of roots from plants yeah. on, on your land, you're gonna have water going through the ground. But if you don't have those plants and those roots and and living organisms in the soil. It's just it's going to be uh, compressed hard, hard to the point pen. of yeah you create a flooding hard, yeah you create a hard pen well that yeah there's a lot of research now and there are uh, there are some like really cutting edge projects and this comes back to like massive land reclamation right uh, farmland in Central and South America that had basically become sterilized by the cattle farming approach. And people going back in there and just dedicating. You couldn't grow a tree on it. You know, you'd have to grow a tree by hand watering it. But going in and just dropping. And this is one thing when we started the podcast with Ian and uh, Keisha and Casey came up and they had spent time, I believe it was in Peru or or somewhere, uh, Paraguay maybe, uh, or yeah, one of those two. And, and you know, the first seven years that this guy was trying to reclaim this massive tract of land, he was just dropping branches and foliar mass, and there was no biology in the soil to decompose it. And so it's just accumulating. But, you know, ultraviolet degradation, temperature, moisture, and the wet seasons of the year, eventually something is going to come along and feed on this organic matter, right? A spore uh, blowing in the wind finds this rich organic dump site and suddenly germinates and the conditions are right and it starts decomposing but to the degree that those trees and those plants and the regeneration of biology actually started causing groundwater to surface again 
you know, through whatever reason, but it's primarily what you're talking about now is like accessing the fruits of the land by penetrating sort of the mechanical damage. It's just unbelievable what's possible. It's yeah. really unbelievable what's possible. And it gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, me too. A lot of hope that that, that there is reconciliation out there. Yeah, and, well, and even just to be able to achieve that in one human lifetime, it's yeah. just mind-blowing. And, and you hope that, you know, if you take on a project like that, that it'll continue on for much longer. That yeah. you know, that's the thing that I've acknowledged when uh, listening to stories like that or watching talks about it, uh, researching them. Because uh, I, I almost went to Borneo to work uh, on a very similar project um, where this guy's been there for 20, 30 years, and he's basically changed the weather <laughs> because of what he's done. And he works with the local people so that not only is he like, I'm going to buy this land and, and make it back to, you know, what it was and have a healthy ecosystem, but it's also a functioning farm. So yeah. underneath the canopy of the trees, they're growing fruits so that they can sell it at the market. And, yeah. you know, it, he's adapting it to both fit um, like what the community needs, uh, of the community of people, and then also the community of animals. Because his, his, his inspiration, and I forgot his name, there's a TED talk that he did that he, he goes deep into what he did, and it's mind-blowing. But it started with him finding an, an orangutan in, a, um, in a, a trash can. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he was like, what happened here? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he had this connection with it, and he was like, well, I'm going to dedicate my life to creating an environment where these orangutans can live. And it ended up being, you know, much more than just orangutans, obviously. Yeah. With uh, planting natural plants and and whatnot. But Oof. yeah. The scale. I really respect people that can function on that scale. Yeah, me too. That scale, I'm dealing with a miniaturized subject matter that hopefully can I mean, my goal has always been with Bonesai, not originally. Originally, I just thought, oh, this is really cool. And honestly, the thing that drew it to me was was the relationship of of cultivating and care. Like you touched on that, like fostering this living plant, you mm -hmm. know, in a, in a way that seemed to be more engaged than like a, a pothos or a house plant. Um, but, but you recognize like when you connect, because trees are such a large organism, that it's hard for you have no desire to touch a redwood because like you stand at the base of a 200 foot tall red you don't really there's really not a lot of there's like a grander there but that's about it right yeah. whereas yeah. the willow touches the ground and suddenly you have a and contact I, point right and i love that you said that because for me like with the honeysuckle that branch that's that was swooping down a little bit was like the invitation to climb it because i would climb trees so much as a kid and i still do and it, and that that lower branch is an invitation to be like hey you know, yeah. hey, you want to come up here <laughs> yeah. for yeah. me and for a lot of people. And it is personal and it makes it feel more like intimate and more like, hey, I'm like, I'm actually engaging with this tree and, and communicating with it. And But also like, you know, I'll take steps to not mess up the bark, you know, sure. like you're respecting the tree and like acknowledging that it's living. And, yeah. and I'm realizing right now that like, I, I'm sure that was probably one of my, that was one of my first interactions with nature where I was acknowledging the uh a living thing trying to survive despite the fact that you know like i'm climbing all over it because i do remember being very intentional with my steps even as a kid yeah it's like oh man i'm like i'm really damaging this tree this isn't good yeah and um and you have that same experience when you're wiring a a, a bonsai yeah well i mean the miniaturized form it's like it might be an access point but people that can take on such m m 
magnificently large and daunting projects like it, the sort of you know one foot in front of the other concept of massive scale and just this like consistent chipping away chipping away like the guy in borneo you're talking about 30 years he's just been chipping away and i mean that's what i see about your garden oh. <laughs> the whole overall garden not just the trees but like the actual landscape. yeah that's its it own all. big that's undertaking it. right yeah. it's yeah. like here are all these individual trees of a variety of species that aren't from the same family right and you're having to care for them as individuals, yeah. whereas, you know, with the, these bigger projects, it's an entire ecosystem that is actually kind of maintaining itself over time, you know? You have a chaotic house party in your garden. Yeah, you it is. It. It's a rager. It's <laughs> definitely a rager. Yeah, I, 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 I think the ultimate goal for me coming back to that is to figure out how, how to create how this facility and that's the commitment. I think that's the big commitment to the landscape is. Although, you know, I want a landscape that looks nice. I honestly want a landscape that makes the endeavor of pursuing bonsai easier because it starts to help take care of some of the things. We're not there yet. Like it's that this is an ongoing experiment to figure out how you create an environment around this endeavor that makes the physical act of growing bonsai easier. And I think we're I don't think we're far off, but I don't think that we've figured out the the fine tuned components of the ecosystem that allow it to really thrive and i think one of the biggest things one of the biggest impediments honestly i i, I don't know if i totally believe this yet but i sus i suspect it, it is is the modern soil substrate i think is becoming a bigger and bigger issue you know like i think we're probably at another turning point with change of weather uh change of of climate and whatnot where we're going to have to do a further exploration of soils Mm. which I think is fascinating. Fertilizers, nutrition. I think this is another one. Um, and, 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 it, and it just speaks to the forever changing ecology of the forest environment or the natural environment too. Right. Yeah. That's interesting to think about because yeah, if you, if you study what's been going on in any forest nearby, I'm sure it's been changing so frequently over the course of, you know, a, a single tree's life. You know, whether it's, you know, and 300 year old, 400 year old tree, there's a, a lot going on and it has to adapt to whatever, whatever the soil might be doing, whatever the weather is doing. Yeah. And yeah. here these trees are in, in these little pots and they have to kind of do the same thing. And you, you have to be the facilitator of that change. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. Which, which some people might say, you know, like plant plant the tree back in the ground and let it do it. And it's like, well, it's, you know, like people don't necessarily value trees and grounds in the ground as much. Like suddenly putting this tree in a pot and everybody says, oh my gosh, that must be so expensive. That must be, that's so valuable suddenly. And it's like, you know, like you didn't, nobody cared about this when it was in the ground. Why does it, why do you care about it now? You know, well, it's you because put it on a pedestal. <laughs> it, yeah, because it's on a pedestal because it's digestible. Yeah. You know, because it, it's its perspective is removed from the greater landscape and suddenly it has a, a higher prominence or priority placed on it. It's really just a matter of perspective at that point. And, and I don't know. Well, and accessibility too. Not everybody's going to go, uh, uh, you know, hiking in the Rockies in their life. Yeah. So that's something too I think is amazing for anybody, um, not even just people that might not be able to just go physically go on a hike, <laughs> but also people that just won't, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, but they still appreciate nature yeah. and trees and can observe what, uh, 
what Mirai does or what anyone that practices bonsai does. And uh, that's so crazy that you brought up accessibility. I think I think the the whole motivation of the beginner series was always about accessibility too, right? Like you're talking about making it accessible uh, in ways that you know it hasn't necessarily been explored yet. And the whole notion of like, Josh, you're going to ask questions that I'm not intuitively going to be even thinking of offering the information or teaching in that way as a way that the beginner series allowed people to have accessibility to bonsai and what is a complex subject matter, but in ways that are digestible, right? I think it was awesome. I think the first season of the beginner series was really tremendous. Yeah, I, I mean, in Mirai fashion, we adapted with the times and did what we could with the content as the pandemic hit and everything. And <laughs> that was so much fun for me to do. And even just with the the honeysuckle that you um, that you reviewed my like with when you reviewed the the stream that I did with the honeysuckle. Right. That was really interesting to watch. And at times I'm just like, uh, like, like kind of cringing because I uh, realized that like because you're watching this edited version, um, you're observing my my bonsai practice and 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 like. I don't know. There's just moments that are so funny to to watch as I uh, try to try to um, practice bonsai and and take what I've learned from you and throughout the series. Right. It was um, it was interesting being on the editing and filmmaking side of of your journey when you go from watching doing close-up shots of Ryan's hands that always know what they're doing to your hands that are just like, like kind of like flopping around in oh, a yeah. sense, <laughs> like holding the chopstick kind of funny and like you're yeah. like what? poking around and it just, it, it was suddenly like being left-handed. <laughs> right. Well, what's great about that is people were able to see it and be like, oh yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay. Like that's where I'm starting too. Relatability. Like what are your questions and what are you struggling with? And I hope that, and I think that we did um, based on the response that it helped people um, kind of take those first few steps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, finding finding uh, common ground in the challenge. Like bonsai is not easy. Not easy for anybody. Not easy for me. It wasn't easy for Mister Kamura. Bonsai isn't easy, but it's awesome, and it's pretty freaking fun. And yeah. I'm super stoked that you're about ready to dive deep. I know. I'm gonna. I got. I have a nice. When are we going? Yard and I. I well. Like uh, I schedule it. <laughs> Eve, schedule it for April. Eve, Eve, do you want to schedule your bonsai journey? <laughs> yeah, I will. I'll schedule all my own filming and schedule the camera people to capture me. And then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the. Um. That Does is that the feel trade. weird? Narcissistic. You're gonna, <laughs> just exactly. Yeah. This is exactly what it is. You're gonna schedule oh, yeah. people to film yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, would you know anything about that? Dude. <laughs> <laughs> It is a, it is a is a a personal conflict that I wrestle with every day. It is. Josh, can I pay you to film me? <laughs> well, I think I can do that. Uh. <laughs> it's weird. It is weird. That's a, that's a that's a whole. You know what that I mean, reminds me of is when we were like, we gotta film you filming Mondays at Mirai. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, just so people can understand that. That there's a bit more that goes into it than, than what might what it might seem. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. I'm just out here having fun, walking around with the camera. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, that's uh, yeah. I'm really excited for Eve to get started. It's going to be fun to be able to focus on being behind the camera and capturing what her experience is. Indeed.
Indeed. I'm going to be a star. You are. Yeah. <laughs> and that's actually what your objective is in this whole thing. Yes. Actually, that's Being the whole famous. reason I came into it. Yeah. I want to be YouTube famous. Oh, uh, that's the number one reason. Uh-huh. I'd like to be an influencer. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you can so, take my my unused Instagram handle, I suck at bonsai, and run with it. I know. It. That's what we were talking about. I was like, I was like, I should just go ahead and I should start making a, a bonsai TikTok. The bonsai I suck at I suck at bonsai TikTok. There it is. Something like that. There it is. Excellent. Fantastic. I'm I'm happy that we got to that point. That is a perfect stopping point. Yeah. I suck at bonsai on TikTok. Check her out. <laughs> Find me in two weeks. Yes. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, I can't wait. Me too. Wahoo. Me too. Good. Happy Friday.